You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is David Schlossberg. I'm the director of uh, the Sydney Environment Institute, uh, and uh, I've sort of curated a, a bit of a series on, uh, well, on climate emergencies and policy responses, and this is the first uh, of those. Before we start, I do want to acknowledge that we are on the unceded land uh, of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Uh, it's on their land that the University of Sydney is built. Uh, there are parts of tens of thousands of years of environmental history literally uh, built into the buildings here in the mortar that holds together the quad, for example. This has been a place of learning about the relationship between people and environment. Uh, for a very long time, and I just want to pay respect, not just to elders, uh, but to the traditional knowledge that's embedded in this place. Uh, so we are going to talk a bit about heat waves, which also seems odd because it's like the one disaster that we didn't have this summer was an extended heat wave. We had the hottest days that we've ever had in this country, uh, but thankfully we didn't have uh, a long extended heat wave with everything that comes with that but we do know that those are coming uh, and it's time to think and plan about that. Um, so the way this is gonna work, we're going, we're going to have a few presentations, just uh, some short presentations from our esteemed panel, uh, and then we'll sit down and have a conversation amongst ourselves and then we'll open it up to you and we'll have plenty of time uh, for uh, a Q&A. So joining us tonight, uh, First, actually, I'll do it in the order that people will speak. Uh, Ali Jay is an associate professor in thermoregulatory physiology and director of the Thermo, uh, Thermal Ergonomics Laboratory in the Faculty of Medicine and Health uh, here at the University of Sydney. Uh, he's a lead researcher in the CPC's uh, research node on climate adaptation and health, and we've been working with Ali at the Sydney Environment Institute for a while. Uh, so he's had research all over the place, but the research primarily focuses on developing a better understanding of the physiological and physical factors that determine human heat strain, basically what happens to the body, and Ollie will talk about that, and the risk of especially um, heat-related health problems during work and sport, uh, as well as among vulnerable people. And vulnerable people, I think, will be a theme uh, as we go through the evening. Second up will be Tess Lee. Tessa is an associate professor who specializes in the anthropology of public policy. So her interest is with issues of dysfunction uh, in policy, how it occurs, uh, to what, to whom, uh, and how to address it. And Tess looks especially at extraction industries, at everyday militarism, at houses and infrastructure, and schools, uh, and efforts to create culturally congruent forms of employment and enterprise from multiple, multiple perspectives. So her work really asks why the path to realizing seemingly straightforward ambitions is so densely obstacled. I really like that line. Uh, that's actually similar to, similar to some of the stuff I'll talk about, about the complexity uh, of policymaking. Uh, Stephanie McFarlane is a clinical social worker uh, with experience in the areas of corrections, homelessness, and drug and alcohol in New South Wales in both government and non-governmental sectors. She currently manages the homelessness portfolio for the Southeastern Sydney Local Health District. 
uh, which aims to coordinate initiatives that improve health outcomes and equity for people uh, experiencing or at risk uh, of homelessness and accessing health services. Uh, she advocates for public policy to be responsive to the needs of the most vulnerable and priority populations and is close to completing her master's, congratulations, in public uh, and social policy. Uh, and as I said, my name is David Schlossberg. I'm a professor of environmental politics in addition to directing the City Environment Institute. I do a bit of work and I'll, I'll show some of it, a bit of work in adaptation and resilience that has some substance to what those words actually mean. Uh, and so I'll talk a little, a little bit about that, but I'm also interested in this, in the experience of people uh, in shock events, uh, what happens to people during those shock events, how they experience them. Uh, and so I'll talk a bit about that and what that means for public policy making. Okay, so we'll have four, about 10 minute presentations and then we'll have a conversation up. So Ali will be up first. Thank you, David. So uh, just give you a bit of a, a background as to who, who I am. So my name's Ollie Jay. I'm director of the Thermal Ergonomics Laboratory. We're based in the Sydney School of Health Sciences, which is in the Faculty of Medicine and Health. This is um, a list of my team for this year. Uh, there's a picture of us during some work that we did at the Australian Open. So we do a lot of work with respect to heat and health. Um, but we also do it in elite sporting populations all the way down to the most vulnerable in society. So we've got three postdocs this year, a range of PhD students, and we've got a few affiliate members as well who we work with overseas. The work that we're doing is really focused on the fact that we are living in a, a, a clearly cl changing climate. Now, um, uh, the, the evidence is very, very clear of the seriousness of this particular situation. I think this is really nicely illustrated by this particular graph here, which is from the New York, New York Times uh, climate um, uh, edition. So this is basically showing the, uh, the temperatures that we've experienced across 30, uh, 30 years, so the decades from 1950 to 1980. And um, this is how they were classified using the data from between 1950 and 1980. So you see a normal distribution, some days are considered normal, some days are considered cool, others hot, and there's a very few days that are considered extremely hot. Now, using the very same definition for a hot day and an extremely hot day, if we then now look at the state of affairs in between 2005 and 2015, it's very clear that the number of very hot days and extremely hot days are increasing manifold. So this is a real challenge that we are facing, and we know that by the year 2030 is that uh, days that were considered extremely hot back in the 1960s and 1970s are pretty much going to be considered the new normal, which is very concerning indeed. The reason it's particularly concerning is because uh, there's a massive impact on public health. And in Sydney here, we see uh, quite an uneven distribution of the type of temperatures that we see across from eastern suburbs all the way through to western Sydney. And this is a, a nice illustration of that very a record hot day that we experienced on January 4th. So, uh, in the CBD, it was around about 37 degrees Celsius, but we're reaching temperatures in the shade of almost 50 degrees Celsius out in the far western Sydney. And I'll keep, keep in mind that that is in the shade, it's not in direct sunlight. So if you're in direct sunlight in the middle of the summer, you're expected to be exposed to temperatures around about 65 to 67 degrees Celsius. So these are massive thermal stresses that people have to deal with physiologically and also emotionally as well. So the health impacts of, of extreme heat are, are very clear. We've understood this and learned this from disasters that have happened uh, throughout the past couple of decades. 
Um, a good example is the is the um, extreme heat event in Western, uh, sorry, in Eastern Europe and Western Europe uh, in 2003. So uh, the number of people that died over the course of about three weeks was north of 70,000 people. So these are 70,000 excess deaths that are occurring due to a heat wave in the space of three weeks. And I think in order to contextualize that, if we look at the number of deaths that we're experiencing with the current coronavirus uh, uh, problem that we're having, it really kind of contextualizes how many people really do die due to extreme heat. And it's quite interesting is that the actual vulnerable populations are very similar to the current um, uh, problem, health problem that we're experiencing right now. Um, we know that people over the age of 75 are particularly vulnerable to extreme heat. So, um, uh, for example, uh, in the Chicago uh, 1995 heat wave, uh, the number of people over the age of 65 that were hospitalized increased by 35%. In 2009, in Adelaide, where there was an extreme heat event, um, the number of people over 75 years old that were hospitalized increased by 150%. So what we do know is that in the last 20 years is that heat waves are responsible for more deaths than all other natural disasters combined. And that trend has continued in the last five years. And this has now led the, um, or some authors in the Lancet to claim or to state that the health effects of extreme heat are the public health challenge for the 21st century. This is something that we're going to continue to, do, continue to deal with. We're on a climate trajectory that is basically undeniable. And no matter what we do, we still have short-term impacts that we're going to have to deal with. So what we do in my laboratory is that we work as physiologists and ergonomists and try to work with public health organizations to ensure that the information that is given to the general public to protect them the best way possible is driven by the latest scientific evidence. And in many cases, a lot of the directives that are put forth by public health agencies are actually not based in any scientific evidence whatsoever. A lot of it is based on conventional wisdom. So what we're trying to do is work with these authorities to generate that scientific evidence to inform um, who are the most vulnerable and what they should do. Um, so this is an example of the, of the extreme heat policy that, uh, or the recommendations, the Beat the Heat campaign by New South Wales Health. So we've worked with them a little bit as well. So this is a summary of some of the most vulnerable during, during heat waves. So uh, we know that people over the age of 65 are vulnerable. People with comorbidities, so people with coronary artery disease or people with kidney uh, problems really struggle in the heat, and people on prescription medications. And it's quite tempting to think that the people who are most vulnerable are vulnerable because they simply overheat. And that's, it's not as simple as that. So David earlier referred to the idea of these ideas not being as simple and straightforward. It's actually quite complex depending on the comorbidity that the individual has. And this is, we try to illustrate this in a somewhat complex figure right here. So we know that if somebody has cardiovascular problems, then when they get very, very warm, is that the first thing our body does autonomically to de defend body temperature is that we have this process called vasodilation where we open up the blood vessels in the skin, we direct hot blood from the body core to the skin to aid heat loss. But we've only got so much blood inside the body and in order to maintain blood pressure and keep consciousness, our heart starts beating more times. So if the heart is contracting more times every minute, it requires more oxygen, it requires more blood flow, and if there are, is there a com compromised uh, delivery of blood via blockages in the or semi-blockages in the coronary arteries that could result in a catastrophic cardiovascular event. So this is, an, a, is something that's happening due to heat exposure, but not necessarily because people have got very, very hot uh, bodies or high core temperatures. 
Um, if we look at people with kidney disease, for example, the pathway is slightly different again. So we know that when you get hot, we sweat. It's the evaporation of that sweat that cools us down. But if we sweat profusely and we don't replace those fluids, we have a steady progressively, a progressive uh, dehydration of the body. Now, if we don't replenish those fluids, ultimately that dehydration progresses and results in an increased renal strain, so increased amount of strain on the kidneys. And if people have an underlying kidney disorder, this will result in, a, in chronic kidney failure. So we know that that happens as well. At the same time, we have people who are physically active or within the workplace, and they're generating a lot of heat from metabolic heat production, from people working or exercising, from the large muscles that are contracting. That generates heat, and we need to be able to dissipate that heat before we reach hypothermia. So in this particular case, you might have otherwise healthy people, but they're very physically active, they're exposed to a high heat stress, coupled with high levels of physical activity, and they're the people who are most likely to reach critically high core temperatures, which, reduce, which uh, result in a, uh, basically what happens is you have a, a, your gut becomes leaky, and um, because of reduction in blood flow to the gut, and then endotoxins leak out, it causes a sepsis responses, a response in kills people. But the reason this is important is that we need to understand the pathways of heat stress, uh, heat stress and heat-related illness in order to develop the best um, interventions that we can possibly get for each of these particular uh, subgroups of individuals. So what we're doing is trying to work with public health authorities and looking at the type of directives that they're giving and what they generally say at the moment is drink water, keep your house cool, keep your body cool, and take care of others. So uh, these are quite straightforward um, directives, but I think we need a bit more resolution, a bit more granularity in terms of what we're describing telling people to do. So um, some of the questions that we're trying to answer is that if people have been told to drink, then how much and when? And are there any exceptions to this rule, particularly if you have certain cardiovascular disease and you're trying to avoid things like preload on the cardiovascular system? Um, from a perspective of keeping your house cool, what happens if you don't have air conditioning, which is very, very common among the most vulnerable because it's so expensive, plus there's an environmental cost of mass air conditioning use? What happens is if there's a power blackout of all of us. So maybe if it's 50 degrees Celsius across the whole of Sydney, and then there's so much demand for electricity to, to uh, fuel those air conditioning units, what happens if the electricity grid can't sustain that level of electricity and we end up having power failure across the whole city? What do we do then? And we're trying to answer those questions. And I can share some of the answers during the question period if, if you like, if you're interested. In terms of keeping the body cool, we want to make sure that what we're recommending is supported by evidence. And we need to understand how exactly we can implement those different low cost and most importantly, sustainable cooling strategies for many of the most vulnerable who might not have access to things like air conditioning. And finally, in terms of the take care of others, we're trying to find different ways in which we can reach the most vulnerable with the most effective um, messaging to encourage them to use the most sustainable strategies that we know work based on the scientific evidence. So right now we have two NHMRC project grants that are underway. Uh, one in particular is, um, is, has been going for the last couple of years. And this is where we're trying to develop the, the best evidence to support the, the best sustainable cooling strategies for the most vulnerable during heat waves. So what we have in my laboratory is a climate chamber. And in that climate chamber, we simulate a range of different heat waves in terms of the air temperature and the humidity. We then expose human participants to these environments. We measure how hot they get, how much, how much they become dehydrated, and how much work their heart has to do, and how hot they feel it is. And then we systematically assess the efficacy of these different sustainable cooling strategies. One thing that we've looked at quite a lot is the idea of moving air instead of chilling it, because it's around about 50 
times cheaper and cleaner than using air conditioning. So we're trying to find the best ways in which people can keep coolest the best in, in heat waves. Um, another project that we have underway is um, we're developing a new extreme heat policy for child and youth sport. That's something that just is getting underway right now. So we're looking right across the lifespan. And we're fortunate enough to have support from other funders, uh, such as the Wellcome Trust, uh, New South Wales Government Planning of Industry Environment, who've been very critical in supporting some of the work that we've been doing with the heat, uh, the heat wave uh, sustainable cooling strategies. And as, as I mentioned before, we've, we do some work in, in the sport arena as well. I'll finish up there because there's lots of things to get through, but I'll be happy to take any questions afterwards. Thanks very much. I had PowerPoints and I had a prepared speech and I had a massive um, tech fail, but beyond that, I've literally just come back from an Indigenous Climate Justice Summit in the centre of Australia where key landowners, um, and key traditional owners, key ceremonial leaders and a younger generation of Indigenous activists got together. And what was extraordinary about that moment was it's the first time I've been working as an anthropologist with Indigenous mobs for my entire adult career. This was the first time where talk about climate change was not on the periphery, seen as some kind of um, East Coast or Pacific Island concern, but was core and centre of what Indigenous people wanted to talk about and uh, foreground as important to their survivability. That's because they already know that they don't wake up to birds anymore in Tennant Creek, not on any day, not just in heat waves. That there are no male honeybees, native honeybees, in the trees around Borrolula, which means there's no fertilising of the gum trees or the flowers, which means there's no food for the bats, which means, which means, which means. There's this cascade of things that they're observing. In Uendamu, there are no new houses to be built because there is no water. And these are places which have got the highest population growth and the highest demand for housing in Australia. So I decided there as well that turning up with my research findings and my uh, PowerPoint slides was kind of missing the point, the urgency of the moment. And I thought I'd treat you the same. So with apologies, but also sorry, not sorry, uh, for my deliberately polemical um, tone today, I want to talk about what is needed, not just to focus on heat waves, which are the extreme version of a wave of things. We're surrounded by the wave of things that are starting to combine and coalesce via security concerns being amongst them. So some more confessions. I'm from Darwin, like really from Darwin. I was born there. That matters. It matters because I come from the margin, as one snobby person one time in Oxford said, oh, you're from the peripheries, periphery. <laughs> so every kind of stuff you, but yeah, I do come from the peripheries, periphery. Here at the University of Sydney, I have also founded what's called the Housing for Health Incubator. And that incubator is a partnership with Health Habitat, who in turn are a not-for-profit group who for some three decades now have been working to do something very simple, which if you ever dealt with Indigenous policy means very complicated, very simple issue of attending to just repairing and maintaining those things inside anyone's house that are essential 
if you're to be able to live in that house healthily, if the house isn't going to disease you. This matters to not just heat waves, but to surviving climate change. These things are, can you turn on the tap and get drinkable, palatable water? Can you wash yourself and your kids? Can you flush effluent away or is the effluent safely disposed of? These are not radical concepts, they're very key to population health. In the majority of the cases, te uh, houses tested, no, you can't on a number of those fronts for the straightforward reason that things are put in upside down, back to front and with the wrong material choices for the circumstances, or they're not maintained. In 8% of the cases, 8% of the houses, it might be something to do with tenant damage. AKA 92% of the, of the circumstances are beyond the tenant's control and it's to do with lack of repair and maintenance, poor material choice. This matters. So legacy infrastructure and preparing the legacy infrastructure that we have in a place like Sydney or Melbourne or any of the regional centres are front and centre of climate change preparedness. I can extrapolate my work from regional and remote Australia and look at the neglect of the subterranean pipes and infrastructures in this city, where we already lose 30% of water on in, in any given moment just through leakage. And you think about the drought that we've just been through, and you think about that extravagant loss, and you should think that needs fixing before we move into the more radical changes that are coming. Even if we stopped everything right now and did everything that we're told to be doing for climate change preparedness, we stopped using cars and we stopped using fossil fuels and we started living within our means. If we did all that in the next 10 seconds, we're still facing a whole lot of changes. So legacy infrastructures are one of the things that I would be saying are key to our preparedness for climate change. But back to what I know is already happening. For vulnerable people living hard lives, they will live harder lives in even harder places. Some places will not be livable. It's too hot, it's too flood prone, it's underwater or it's without water. That will put more pressure on places, metropolitan settlements, urban settlements and regional settlements that might act as places of survivability for our internal climate refugees. We will have internal climate refugees. So I'm putting forward a bit of a plea that we think about the investments now in the kinds of habitats we would want and the kinds of neighbourhoods we would want. Because in that scenario, and as we are currently configured, what we will, we will be relying on is basically systems of abandonment, zones of sacrifice, and a carceral regime, which pretty much locks up those who don't fit into the privileged kind of zone of care. So we want alternatives to that. It's more than just imagining how houses are configured, but thinking about houses as configured within networks, within ecologies. In my plea for where to invest as we're investing in a certain number of regional and urban centres to operate as survival zones for our collective futures, I would like that we have a reduction in everyday labour, 
So we're all working four hours a day in order that there's four hours spare for the municipal shared work that we would need to do to live collectively and well. But those four hours might be after dark and in the morning. We might need to reintroduce siestas. We need to share the resources, laundries, ovens, shared energy. We need to collectivise and socialise insurance systems because uninsurability is a surefire mechanism of reinforcing disadvantage here and now, let alone in any kind of future. In my world, when you elect me as your dictator, benevolent, I will have easy walking for people with chronicities to access services. There will be only public transport, no private cars, only cars for delivery and emergency and service work. Water harvesting and water capture in those dug up roads, which creating shade and pathways and bicycles. So I do research on bicycles uh, because I see this very primitive infrastructure and technology as key to how do we survive into the future, not just as a nostalgia. This needs to be gendered design in my brave new world because safe designs for young women and women with children turn out to be also good designs for elderly people and they're good designs for differently abled people. So let's design around just that small little target group and get a universal benefit. The concept of thermal autonomy is one that I would also be advocating for. That is the ability of people to be able to control their circumstances and their environments so that they can control how they experience their living circumstances. That probably isn't through air conditioning, but there are designs for you know, greater thermal performance in housing which need to be mandated. We have very, very thin uh, environmental codes written into new housing at the moment. There is no requirement to back address legacy housing. And there's certainly no requirement for landlords to make sure that their tenants are being looked after. So if we thought about the vulnerability of tenants who cannot adjust their housing, they cannot put things in, they cannot put shading in and, and necessarily keep their tenancies. Um, in my brave new world, we are doing tremendous acts of care. Unfortunately, just to hark on just a little bit of re actual research, I have actually researched some parts of this in New South Wales. The lowdown is we're preparing nothing like this. We are looking at none of our legacy infrastructures, let alone doing the forward work for all of this eco-design preparedness that in my brave new world would help us go forward. But let me press on. No more golf courses. I have a real bugbear about golf courses, but no more golf courses. Let's turn them into wetlands and forest corridors because biosecurity also relates to ecocide. Uh, and we've been pushing all of those nasty bats that keep on bringing us these diseases into our urban habitats because they do not have food anywhere else. So that's how climate change and housing and social justice can intersect. Oh, and by the way, all I'm asking for is a complete reinvention of the social. There's actually gonna be some overlap here, probably not surprisingly. 
So um, I want to talk about the experience of heat waves. Uh, talk about what it actually means to live through and reflect on uh, life during a heat wave without air conditioning in Penrith when it's 45 degrees for a number of days. So um, I worked with our friends at Resilient Sydney, and I see Alice here, uh, on a project uh, a year or two ago on the resident experience of a number of different shock events. So we looked at floods in Collaroy, we looked at bushfires uh, in the Blue Mountains, um, which really came back hard uh, this summer, uh, heat waves in Penrith, and we also looked uh, at the experience of both workers in the area and uh, Muslim women after the Martin Place siege. And the question was really about how we understand the experience, how we understand the complexity of the experience, and how we can do that, how we can use that to inform uh, public policy. Uh, to reflect on and actually improve what resilience means. Um, so we did some work, like I said, um, with Resilient Sydney, uh, Beck Dalston and, and Kristen Gabriel. Uh, Hannah Del Bosca is here who did all the number crunching and, uh, uh, and the mapping. Uh, and what I'm going to focus on here, obviously, because of the heat focuses, is on uh, the Penrith case. So the way that this worked, or one of the ways that this worked, is we actually just sort of gathered people together in focus groups and we had them physically map their experience. We had them do three different maps of their experience. The first one is what was the impact? What happened to you? And what was the secondary impact of that? And then we just sat down and we actually talked to people about uh, what, those, what those meant and we asked them about the relationships uh, between um, those maps. So, we get some examples of people's actual experience. So for the impact map, it was just, here's the event in the middle, and here are the most important things, the things that are underlined, what happened, right? So emotions comes up, finance comes up, health comes up. I mean, a lot of things come up uh, again and again. So we just ask people to put the event in the center of the page. What are the immediate impacts? What are the secondary impacts? What are the relationships between the impacts? So you start to see some, some people had more complex maps than others. Uh, and would put quite a bit uh, in there. But the point of these initial maps were the impacts, just what happened to you. Uh, and then we did some other maps um, on the barriers to resilience, right? What kept you from actually having a decent response to this heat wave? What were the barriers in front of you? And then the third map was what helped? What were the enablers? How were you actually able to get through this week-long event with that kind uh, of heat? So those were individual maps that we had people do, and it was just a way to sort of to think about the experience, and then we brought them into, into focus groups, and we um, uh, just got a lot of really interesting feedback and a lot of conversations, a lot of conversations about what worked for me and would that work for you, people sharing tips uh, on how to keep cool, but also explaining the experience. So that's the sort of individual mapping, and then we moved on and we just aggregated those, and these are nowhere near as pretty <laughs> to look at, but they do give us an idea as we aggregate everybody's individual experience to get some sort of sense uh, of what, what kinds of impacts were most mentioned, what were the most important things uh, for people, uh, and so the things that were mentioned most, so this, this map represents everything, every impact that anybody had. Um, of all the people that, that we talk to, and those things that are mentioned most that uh, are most shared are obviously the darker bubbles there. So we learned a number of things from these aggregated maps. Um, most importantly, uh, and I have to admit, surprisingly to me, 
the single most common point that people raised was the stress and the emotional impact uh, of the heat wave. That it was, there was, there was stress, there was anxiety, anxiety about themselves, about their family, there was frustration about the inability to do anything uh, about their situation. Uh, and one anxiety would lead to another, so there was heat, there was an inability to go to work because there, there was caring, and then there was a financial issue, and then there was financial anxiety as well. So stress and anxiety just comes up over and over. The second most important thing that came up again and again was just this impact to daily life. Uh, and just some basic things, not having as much energy uh, to work, uh, having to change travel, especially if, if the trains weren't running, for example, because of the heat impact on the trains or the buses didn't have air conditioning, uh, impact on their daily caring responsibilities, and of course, the financial impact, which would lead back to the stress uh, and feed into that. And then, of course, uh, what people talked about was the impact of their physical health, right? Just the, the discomfort, the fatigue, the illness, the lethargy, uh, the exhaustion, uh, and then, of course, a lot of comments uh, on the emotions. And then um, people talked about, and again, this is people who are most vulnerable and who are suffering most, uh, and we know that people who suffer most from heat waves tend to be those that live alone, and so there was a lot of concern uh, about their own sociability or lack of sociability, the sense of isolation and loneliness that people felt. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this around coronavirus virus as well. So one of the things that we looked at was not just these sort of individual things, there's somebody trying to get in the back, not just these individual things, but how they actually relate to one another, right? So clearly the physical impact triggered other impacts. So it was hot and people would sweat and uh, a few people talked about skin conditions. The skin conditions would get worse when they were sweating and so they were inflamed and that brought some anxiety and they didn't want to be out in public and that would bring some isolation, right? And that was a problem. Um, or heat would bring more caring responsibilities either for children or for elders and that would bring some extra anxiety. So there's a relationship and there's some complexity about the actual experience. And then the barriers. So we found a focus, again, emotions comes up, the stress is a barrier. Being that stressed out makes it really difficult to deal with a shock event. Finances, uh, just the cost. So again, this is the most vulnerable. So the fear of um, heat-related costs like electricity bills, even if people are just using fans. Uh, the cost of lodging, if people had to go someplace, uh, that was cool. Um, lost time at work uh, was stressing people out. Uh, Blackouts were an obvious bear. People, uh, people talked about the loss of electricity. And again, there's a, there's, there's a complexity there. So loss of electricity meant spoilage of food, and that also then led to financial hardship and more stress. All right, so we have to look at the pathway there. Housing comes up again and again as a barrier uh, to dealing with things. Not just the lack of air conditioning, but the quality of public housing and the inability for renters to do anything. Uh, even just to put shades up outside their house. Um, so again, there's a lot of similarity uh, there. Um, and then mobility was another major barrier, just the inability to get around. So not just the train delays and having to wait for buses in the heat, but also just the lack uh, of shade, just walking from one place to another, being in that 60 degree heat, not just the 45 that it is in the shade. All of these things people pointed out as the major barriers to coping. 
So what helped, right? What's the good news? Um, Ollie will be very happy to hear that at the top of the list, what helped people were these low cost items in the absence of air conditioning, right? So fans really helped, wet towels really helped, spray bottles really helped. Um, all of this is labeled as material objects at the top, just the little things that help people deal. And they shared these stories in the focus groups, right? What worked for you? Oh, the, you know, putting the, the wet towel on top of the fan, not just on yourself. And so a number of things that people, uh, people shared because this was the one major way that they actually got through uh, the heat wave was these low cost um, material things. Family, right? Family was absolutely crucial. Social support, friends, employers, colleagues, neighbors, right? And we know that. And there's lots of evidence in, uh, in the heat wave literature about the difference between being isolated and actually having that sort of social support mechanism. And then the other enabler was social and commercial spaces with air conditioning, obviously, where people could go. Though there was, among the most vulnerable, with children especially, there was a hesitation uh, in terms of uh, going to malls, going to shopping centers, going to RSLs, um, looking for social spaces that didn't require purchasing um, was another one of those sort uh, of stressors. Uh, but social spaces are absolutely crucial. So the point here is that there's a real barrier, a set of barriers to resilience, um, but in addition to fans and wet things that people would use, the, which really helped, the main enablers were social, right? And so this, when we start to turn towards the policy response, what do we do, that sort of socialization, um, because it's not just in heat waves, and again, this sort of relates to something Jess was saying, this is just sort of a generalized finding across the events that we have. What enabled people was that sociability, was being able to be um, with others, was having that social support, um, those friends uh, and others. The other important impact um, that sort of we saw across all the events, again, was this emotional toll. And we saw it again this summer, we're seeing it again now uh, with coronavirus, and how we deal with that stress, how we deal with the mental health impacts, how we deal with climate anxiety more generally, all of these things uh, have to come into play when we talk uh, about heat waves. So again, it does go to this broader sense of how do we respond uh, to climate change. So, Overall, and I'll finish with this, what we saw um, is that disaster is a community experience. Uh, and so there need to be community-based and community-level responses. Um, and so we did this work, as I said, with, with Resilient Sydney and Beck Dawson, the head of Resilient Sydney, her takeaway from all of this that she presented a couple of weeks ago um, is about the importance of managing risk in place, right? Of understanding the experience of place, but then also integrating place-based design, place-based decision-making, and this kind of local knowledge uh, into addressing community needs. And then the, the last point to make here, again, is about this complexity of policy. So these events and heat waves is just one, but they show the limits of siloed bureaucracies, right? So during heat waves, Again, one of the things that comes up again and again is housing quality. And if heat waves is something that sort of under New South Wales Health, New South Wales Health says, well, you know, housing, we'll talk about this, right? Housing isn't the issue, uh, right? It's not something that we can deal with. So how you respond has to move beyond just the health issue and into a whole range uh, of other questions. Another example is employment insecurity. And again, we're seeing this with coronavirus. So if people have to take time off uh, to work with others, to sort of take care of others, that puts a financial strain on them. They're gonna be isolated, that puts a financial strain on them. Um, but again, it's not something that we think of when we think about the health impacts uh, of something like uh, a heat wave. 
So resilience really has to address not just heat, but employment, aged care, housing, transport, sociability, and all those things. So the lesson generally is about complexity in the impacts, complexity in the experiences, and complexity in the development uh, of actually resilient public policy. Thanks. Um, I must say it's rather intimidating going after a bunch of uh, a list of academics, associate professors, professors and the like. But here I am and I'll do my best. Um, so I'm Stephanie McFarlane. I am the Homelessness Health Program Manager for the South Eastern Sydney Local Health District. Um, and I'm going to talk about heat waves and priority populations. Uh, firstly, I do want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Gattaca people of the Eora Nation. Um, I also want to acknowledge this beautiful artwork that was done by one of our consumers with lived experience of homelessness. We uh, commissioned a few of our uh, homeless artists to do a bit of artwork for us, and this was one of them. It hangs up in my office, and it's quite lovely. Um, so for a little bit of context, I sit within the Priority Populations Unit. Um, the Priority Populations Unit is as follows up there. Um, our role uh, is about bringing together program areas that address the needs of vulnerable populations. Um, in particular, we, we look to identify um, new and emerging issues and support initiatives that improve health access and health equity. Um, I was meant to be presenting today with a colleague from the Multicultural Health Service, but she has unfortunately injured, my, injured her arm, uh, so I'm flying solo. Um, I also want to acknowledge that Aboriginal health isn't part of the priority populations unit, um, but that's because they have their own Aboriginal health unit, which does a lot of work in this space. So I'm going to focus on homelessness and multicultural health, but I always think it's really important to start with a de definition of homelessness, um, as many, it can be varied in understanding for, for different people. Um, and I work with it very closely every day, so I sort of have a broad understanding of it, but not everyone does. So the Australian Bureau of Statistics um, defines homelessness quite broadly. Um, a person is identified as being homeless if they do not have suitable alternative living arrangements and they're currently staying in a dwelling that is inadequate, that it has no tenure, or that the initial tenure is short and not extendable, or that it does not allow control of or access to space for social relations. So as you can tell, that is rather broad, but it tends to break down into three sort of categories of homelessness that we refer to. Uh, so the first is primary homelessness. Uh, many of you will be familiar with primary homelessness as, as it is sort of the, the most um, acknowledged, understood and recognisable form of homelessness, I suppose. Uh, so people experiencing primary homelessness are primarily rough sleepers, uh, sleeping on the streets, in deserted buildings, in doorways, um, in tents, in parks and in cars. There's also secondary homelessness. So that's people who are moving between various forms of temporary accommodation. Uh, they might be couch surfing, they might be staying at refuges, they might be staying at hostels, um, but it's not, it's not permanent rather. Um, and the third form of homelessness is tertiary homelessness. Uh, this is the most common form of homelessness, contrary to popular belief. Um, primary homelessness only makes up about 7% of homelessness uh, nationally. Uh, so tertiary homelessness is the most increasing form of homelessness. It refers to people who are staying in boarding houses uh, that are often dilapidated um, and without security of formal tenancy. You're at the mercy of your boarding house manager who can kick you out. They don't like the look of you. Um, 
or staying in other forms of accommodation that don't meet minimum community standard. Um, and recently, I think in the last sort of four years, um, the ABS added overcrowding or severe overcrowding as a form of tertiary homelessness. And that's the, the form of homelessness that's most increasing, uh, often due to sort of housing affordability uh, issues across the nation. Um, so to be in an overcrowded dwelling, I always have to think about this, it would require four or more bedrooms to house the people living in the accommodation comfortably. Um, and this is most common across new migrant communities, um, international students, um, some refugee communities and some Aboriginal communities as well. Um, but it's probably also important to acknowledge that people cycle through those three forms of homelessness and often uh, a person will cycle through it many times before uh, manage, managing to secure permanent and safe and affordable accommodation. So when it comes to extreme weather, we kind of think about three pillars. Um, culturally and linguistically diverse communities and um, homelessness, uh, people experiencing homelessness will have different complex needs in relation to extreme weather and extreme heat. And it's probably important at this point to note that not all culturally and linguistically diverse communities are vulnerable. Um, there are specific sort of parts that are vulnerable. So perhaps those that are from refugee backgrounds or from new and emerging sort of smaller communities. Um, but when it comes to extreme weather, and I will sort of talk about extreme weather, not just heat, but heat's obviously a huge part of it. Um, the, the common link there is that they often have minimal control over their physical environment. Um, they don't have security over where they stay or where they'll be able to live. Um, and they often experience a lot of stigma um, and discrimination across the community. Uh, so the three pillars are very related. Um, the first one is in accommodation in terms of extreme weather. So um, when you have inconsistent housing or accommodation, it's very difficult to ensure that you're going to be able to keep cool. You're often, if you're a rough sleeper, you're obviously more exposed um, to the weather or to the extreme heat or rain or cold or whatever it is. Um, and your priority might be seeking accommodation doesn't really uh, go further as to keep yourself well in those conditions. Um, as I said, many people don't, many of those groups don't have uh, choice over where they stay. And as has been mentioned in terms of landlords and, and tenancy law, there's not a lot of control over what you can install in terms of air conditioning or shade or those sorts of things. Um, when you're staying in boarding houses, uh, often the electricity is a little bit, or it can be rocky. Um, it might be leaking. You don't want to use electricity. It's hard to uh, use um, connect fans and things like that. Um, and there's often no air conditioning in your specialist homelessness services. So that can make it really hard to keep cool. Um, there's often economic issues. So some of that we've talked about in terms of affordability around electricity costs. Um, and we talk about low cost interventions, which is fabulous. But if you're a rough sleeper, it's pretty hard to carry around your, your cold towel or your fan and plug it in at the nearest PowerPoint. Um, so that sort of creates a, an additional complexity in, in extreme weather events. Um, financial limitations um, and unreliable power supply again in specialist homelessness services and boarding houses um, and I suppose health is a real key issue as well so um, often people from vulnerable multicultural communities and who are experiencing homelessness have multiple uh, comorbidities um, often people experiencing homelessness have age-related issues before they are aging which obviously comp is compounded by extreme heat and weather um, they're often more susceptible to illnesses. Um, often their illnesses are more severe and they last longer than the general population. Uh, particularly people experiencing homelessness don't tend to seek healthcare um, until 
right at the crisis point and even then they might not, which means it's harder to treat and harder to, to maintain uh, treatment for those sort of health issues that are perhaps more impacted in uh, extreme heat. In terms of medication, it's difficult to store your medication, difficult to remember to take your medication. A lot of medication needs to be kept cool um, and it's hard to do that if you don't have a fridge or reliable access to power. Um, and I think as Ollie mentioned, some um, medication is, uh, is uh, heat exacerbates um, the effects of it. So we know that particularly for antipsychotics, um, the efficacy can be reduced in extreme heat um, and sometimes heat-related uh, issues such as dehydration and inability to regulate your temperature can be compounded um, when you have medication and, and it's hot. Um, and often people, uh, particularly I will speak about people experiencing homelessness, um, are, again, trying to uh, manage accommodation issues and sort of those key sort of getting your food, getting to Centrelink, trying to get to the job appointments that Centrelink makes you go to. And so uh, addressing those health um, and heat-related issues um, often aren't done in a sort of um, meaningful or early intervention way. But there are things that work. Um, so we know from um, working in uh, priority populations that uh, collaborating uh, with community organisations and developing partnerships is really important in terms of responses. Um, we, we work to circulate and disseminate messages through the trusted community-based organisations um, because these collaborations and partnerships can build capacity of individuals and communities. Um, they also support the co-design of appropriate messaging strategies. I think that's really key is how we, how we deliver messages around uh, climate change, heat health um, and, and the associated effects um, and how we can co-design those interventions as well to meet the needs of those uh, most affected communities. Um, there's also a um, developing emergency response protocol for extreme weather events. So that's that middle pillar. That's specifically for people experiencing homelessness. And it's specifically for people experiencing primary homelessness in the inner city. So the idea of the emergency response protocol for extreme weather events, it's really hard to say, um, is that the response protocol will be activated um, during a heat wave um, or, in the prompt, or in the event of an extreme uh, weather event by St. Vincent's Hospital. So they're sort of the organisation that monitor the incoming events. Um, they use a formula to determine this, and I couldn't tell you what it is because I'm not from St. Vincent's, but they do have a formula for it. They don't just make it up. Um, and they activate sort of three layers of response. Um, the protocol initially was just for heat and rain events, um, but after the serious or severity of smoke over the most recent summer, they've started to review the policy to, to look at that because that's obviously going to be an ongoing issue into the future. So the first layer of the response usually involves notifying the homelessness outreach services that a possible event might occur. Um, and they work with the specialist homelessness services, such as the drop-in centres and the refuges and the outreach uh, specialists um, to, to try and sort of pre-plan for what might occur. The second layer of activation involves additional outreach. So that will include the, the normal outreach services going out probably well, for, for longer or at extra events or extra times um, for the delivery of sunscreen, water, blankets, whatever is required for this extreme event. Um, and they'll also offer additional health and medical assistance because of obviously the people who are sleeping rough can be quite unwell and will require additional monitoring in close monitoring. And the third layer of, assist of um, 
activation, which I think has only ever been activated once, is when they open um, emergency shelter immediately and they um, offer transport uh, for the rough sleepers to get there and they have 24-hour monitoring. Um, they have 24-hour health service monitoring and they keep that open for as long as the event is, is occurring, um, which is fabulous, um, but that's specific to the city of Sydney. So obviously extreme heat and extreme weather events uh, occur outside the city of Sydney LGA, um, and the, the city of Sydney has funds and resources to, to deliver that approach. And whilst other LGAs are starting to design extreme, or sorry, uh, protocols, they don't have the resources to deliver this. So uh, the, the activation of um, a response is very purely dependent on who can be there to do it. Um, so when we talk about disseminating, or when we talk about protein populations, we have to think about how we disseminate health messages. And there's sort of a couple of forms. There's the routine messages and then there's the emergency messages. Um, and then there's particular challenges around how we target that information to those sort of more vulnerable groups. So routine messages can be provided by health providers in person, in waiting areas, brochures, social media campaigns. They're usually planned in advance and are adequately resourced. Um, they usually have graphic design, video, the budget is known, um, and the dissemination strategy is fixed. So that's just your general health promotion. But when there's emergency messages, uh, there, there's a different strategy entirely. Um, often it's produced under pressure. So we've seen through the coronavirus information that the Ministry of Health has had a lot of challenges trying to get the information out rapidly uh, that's translated appropriately or at the appropriate health literacy level for people who, who don't speak English or who have low levels of literacy in general. Um, the messages are changing rapidly, so it's really hard to get these tailored, um, in, this tailored information out. Uh, it also tends to use mainstream media, internet, social media, um, television, those sorts of things, um, and that doesn't necessarily uh, fit the needs of uh, many populations. So with these messages, we sort of see that we've got some assumptions for the audience, particularly in emergency situations. The first is that they'll have regular access to mainstream media. Uh, they'll have a TV, they'll have a radio, they'll have a computer, they'll have a phone, which is fine, except they might not have any of those things. Um, some of the uh, media that's specific for sort of those smaller language groups only oper op operates on a weekly basis, which isn't quick enough to get out information about rapidly changing um, weather or um, incoming heat or the coronavirus. Um, so that creates real challenges in delivering that information. Um, often the health messages are not tailored to people who don't speak English um, and they're an afterthought rather than preemptive. Um, so they're developed in English and sometimes it's important to sort of, I suppose, remember that that information isn't easily translatable. So messages that are developed in English don't just easily translate to another language because uh, concepts are different um, and words aren't translatable. So it needs a bit more of a thoughtful process. Um, and I, I suppose in sort of this context, Culturally and linguistically diverse communities make up 25% of the um, of New South Wales residents. So it is really um, important. And they also need to have sufficient health literacy to understand how those how the events might affect them. Um, and I think one of the things that's really important is when we give these messages, it's how they can actually uh, implement the responses. So we talk about going to sort of uh, 
shopping centers or whatever where you might keep cool, but a person who's been rough sleeping for a long period of time and hasn't been able to have a shower might not be able to, might not feel comfortable accessing a, a library or a shopping center or maybe asked to leave after a period of time as well. So we've got to think about how those uh, interventions are actually adaptable for, for sort of these key populations. And health information can be really complex. Um, messages should be co-designed where they can be um, because in an emergency situation, speed and time is really important. But many of these challenges can be overcome with appropriate planning. So when we think about reaching predator populations, we need to think about sort of four key, four key questions. Um, we need to ensure that resourcing around planned communication strategies includes predator populations from the beginning. So actually thinking about how we'll target these vulnerable communities um, before we start um, developing or implementing um, activity. So messages should be framed appropriately and include issues that are pertinent to the audience. Um, they should be delivered in a level of language that is appropriate to the audience. So I think, uh, I'm not entirely sure, but I think the way that we frame health uh, information um, in New South Wales Health is set at a reading age of 11 years old. Um, and that's so that it is uh, able to be understood across a wide um, spectrum of the population and it can't be interpreted as different information. So that's really important to, to think about. Um, in terms of translations, they are time-consuming and expensive. Um, we've already found with the coronavirus that some of the translations, we spent in excess of $10,000 on translations and some of them are already out of date. Um, so it is an expensive resource-heavy um, activity. And so they do need time and planning where possible. Um, and it needs to consider cultural aspects as well as linguistic aspects. And it really should avoid the use of translation apps. They're not... Um, really uh, useful in health situations because they don't translate uh, the context, they translate words. Um, we need to understand how best to disseminate information. So that's when we really uh, utilise our community partners and our relationships with, with other services because they are the best way to target these communities because they're the services that have the best relationship with them. So it's about getting them on board and being able to, to use them to deliver messages and to deliver um, strategies. I think I'll kick off just with um, maybe one or two questions um, for everyone here, because there are a, a couple of issues that sort of flowed through a number of these. And I guess one of them has to do with this question um, that Tess raised, uh, but is certainly in everybody's mind about unlivable places and, uh, and, and really and internal refugees, right? People moving away from places that are too hot. And we do think about the interior most when, when we think about that. We, we don't really think about coastlines, but um, I mean, one of the questions is going to be Penrith and Western Sydney and areas that are regularly getting up uh, to 45. So I guess the question is, with, with heat making places unlivable, right? what, what then is a priority? Uh, in terms of policy, because we're not, I mean, that gets beyond or that gets, that's sort of before the physicality question. That's, that's the question of what do we do with people who have no place to go? Wasn't I sufficiently Che Guevara <laughs> for the room? I mean, honestly, I, I think that there are, there, there's some binary choices here. One is we continue to think that, you know, pretty much we can live as we live now. And sure, some poor people are going to suffer but, you know, maybe a bit more than they already suffer now. You know, we have a fairly high tolerance for inequality now. 
So, particularly if we think about that from a global point of view, we have a very high tolerance for global inequality. So we could just map that on to domestic inequality and you know, increase our appetite for regimes of inequality. And pretty much the rich are already organising their own bolt holes. We know this. We know what kinds of property and where and what kind of land and water rights are being bought up where and by whom. So, you know, these plots and plans are already in place. Uh, we also know that the insurance industry is sorting out where it's evacuating from and where it's occupying in order that it continues to profit from these regimes. So disaster capitalism is continuing. So in my view of things, the other choice is we start to reimagine now collectively, use the word co-design, the kinds of communities and neighbourhoods that we will need to become if we're to do this with grace and civility and humanity. And I think that means redesigning neighbourhoods now in places that have a hope of being livable for the multiple. That's me. Well, I think that concept or that idea of redesigning neighbourhoods is, is really important. Um, I'm not sure if we're quite there yet, but, it, you know, it is, it is a dream. I suppose at the moment, I, I think one of the, the key issues is that we don't necessarily, and I think you mentioned this before, David, is that we don't necessarily link health and housing together. They're sort of very, very separate um, at, uh, at a service system level and at a policy level. Um, and I think one of the challenges for, for how we sort of develop this is, is how we advocate for and get traction around connecting those two things together, because it's absolutely impossible um, to to do this in the future and to improve health outcomes for, for people who are living in unlivable areas or what will be unlivable areas if we're not thinking about them together. Um, and that's going to continue to be a real challenge, I think, because they don't talk to each other. They don't play well in the sandpit. So there's heat and housing. And Ollie, I know one of the other areas that you've worked in is, uh, is the work environment, right? And so th this question of... Uh, uh, of unlivable is not just about housing, it's about the everyday life at work as well. You wanna talk a little bit about that work? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, uh, uh, if we look outside of Australia, um, so we're doing some work at the moment, looking in um, at workers in, in Bangladesh in ready-made ready garment factories. And one of the challenges in that type of environment is that um, during the hotter times of the year, the people, who are working in those factories end up having to stay around about an hour or an hour and a half longer every day to get the same pay because the way in which they're paid is through productivity and output as opposed to by the hour. So from a climate justice perspective, this is clearly um, uh, not an optimal situation because then they have knock-on effects is that they're spending more time at work, less time at home, less time with family and so on and so forth. So, um, that's an example of the way in which uh, the work environment um, uh, is, is impacted. Um, in Australia, we know that a lot of big box retail uh, places, they have large warehouses. A lot of them are, are in, in Sydney, at least a lot of them are, are located out in Western Sydney where it's a lot hotter. And um, these companies simply doesn't make financial sense for them to air condition and it probably doesn't make environmental sense either, to be fair, uh, to, to air condition these large warehouses. So you've got people who are, uh, we've got a progressively aging workforce as well. Uh, our physiological tolerance to the heat 
is declining with, or does decline with age. We know that. So your ability to sweat goes down. Um, you're more susceptible to that cardiovascular uh, strains that I described before. And uh, if you're working in one of these environments that are not air conditioned, we know that these, these environments, they're, they're poorly structured. They're made of metal typically that uh, um, are more like greenhouses, I think, uh, uh, during the hottest parts of the year. And you know, people are working in environment, indoor environments that are as hot as 40 degrees Celsius. And they're very still as well. Plus there's um, particular types of clothing that they've got to, be, got to wear for protective reasons as well. So all of these things kind of then compound to really worsen the heat stress situation. But even in, this, in an Australian context where you've got a working environment where people are getting paid by the hour, people still get sick. We know this. We know that there's a threefold increase in the number of uh, uh, sick leave days during hot, the hottest part times of the year. These are very, uh, very costly to the, to the employers as, as well as the employees, but the employees generally are, are quite reluctant to talk about the problem because they're always worried about security of jobs. So it's a very complex situation and it's not just a physiological one and a physical one. It's, uh, it's also understanding the way people think and the other kind of social pressures that are involved in that. So before we started, one of the things that I thought we were going to sort of all bring up or agree on is the, the value of the social and responding, right? The value of family and friends and sociability. But another theme that came up is this question of control and autonomy uh, of one's environment. So this, this idea of control, not being able to control one's home environment or have a home environment, not being able to control one's work environment. And Tess, I really like that idea of of thermal autonomy. And I guess the, I mean, the simple question here is, you know, what does this, I mean, for each of us, really, what, what does that mean, right? What does that, what sort of policy is there uh, in response to this idea of, uh, of this lack of control over one's own thermal environment? Um, well, I think for me, the first thing that comes to mind is across sort of the, the culturally and linguistically diverse and the uh, homeless or at risk of homeless population is affordable housing. Um, affordable housing from a rental perspective, but I suppose from a sort of rent to live and buy kind of perspective as well. So uh, for, for my population that I work with in particular, there's no such thing as talking, or there's, there's no point talking about sort of thermal autonomy until there's somewhere to live. Um, and we have wait lists for public housing that you can't really have thermal autonomy over, but that, you know, even wait lists for that are 10, 15 years. If you're really unwell, you might get a public housing property in two years, um, but that's just not good enough. And if we don't have people who are able to, who are living in public housing, who are able to afford, uh, sort of move out of public housing, have pathways into affordable uh, living, then I, I don't know, I suppose the question of thermal uh, autonomy is kind of obsolete. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's key because tenants, um, let alone those who are, I loved your definitions of homeless, by the way. Um, not that I love the idea of homelessness, but I liked the broadening of the aperture so that people in overcrowded circumstances can be homeless, absolutely. 100% agree. So affordable housing, but also the socialising of housing. So there is no reason why social housing can't be incredibly upmarket and beautiful and something that we would desire to live in. Um, that's a social rearrangement. Those are economic choices that we are, in fact, have been abiding over for some time with the financialising of the house as an asset as opposed to it being a public shelter responsibility. 
a shelter and wellbeing responsibility for populations. So we've kind of gone down this route, which we have become accustomed to thinking of as inevitable, as ordained and, and unbreakable. But they can be dismantled. They were assembled. They can be disassembled. We can imagine and do otherwise. And there are models, there are multiple models all around the world um, of how to do that. But it does require that Australians um, re-addict to different economic models of being in the world. Uh, so that's part of my answer, which is why I'm refusing to answer the other part of your question, which is uh, which policy would we call for? Promo, I have a book coming out called Wild Policy. And at the end, there's this little primer, the Wild Policy Manifesto. And rule number one is don't ask for better policy. Because what I'm arguing in that book is the entire apparatus at the moment is hardwired and addicted to an extractive capitalist model, which is landing us in the thing that we are in and the thing that we are facing and the solutions aren't to be found in that thing. So asking for a better version is asking for too weak a tool to be using for the settler colonial matrix that we are in. Just saying. Not entirely sure I understand what you're saying, but that's great. <laughs> um, I can answer your question. Yeah. I could try. Yeah. And I could try to answer that question using something that Tess actually said in the talk. Um, so... From a practical perspective, I think um, policies around um, uh, building codes and the materials that are used for buildings, I think this is uh, something that can, we can do a much better job of. Um, I think Tess mentioned that the, 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 the regulations around them are relatively weak at the moment. And there's a lot of things that we can do with the built environment, and I'm not an expert in the built environment, but a lot of things that we can do with it um, to uh, lower the indoor thermal burden even when it is very hot outside. So I think that's something that in terms of insulation requirements, in terms of orientation of houses relative to each other, relative to the sun, et cetera, et cetera. Um, relatively straightforward policies and requirements for new buildings that, um, uh, that could be implemented, I think. Yeah, because I'm just thinking of one example. It's a story I heard from Melbourne where new social housing was built. So social housing, housing being made available, and yet massive Western facing glass windows that didn't open. Uh, and so talk about just lack of control or autonomy over the environment. So, you know, getting to 35 degrees inside when it was only 25 degrees outside. And that just those kinds of, uh, of mistakes, huge mistakes and, you know, easily fixed uh, on one, one quick one, a big bugbear of mine, is also this idea around the idea that to cool people, you need to cool the air. And it's actually not necessarily true, is that we can get, we can achieve cooling of people, which is ultimately the most important thing um, from a thermal stress perspective. You can achieve it without actually reducing the air temperature as much. Moving the air is a, is a much cheaper and cleaner way of cooling people than uh, simply just chilling the air. And, we, and by regulations... Uh, thermal comfort indoor uh, building regulations is that if you chill the air, you actually have to keep it still in order for it to be comfortable. So uh, that's something, a situation that we found ourselves in because we insist on using air conditioning. And we think that the only way in which we can cool people is by cooling the air that envelops them. And it's not strictly true. Okay, so four very different 
presentations on impacts of heat and ideas about heat policy. And now over to you all, you all um, for questions to us. And you can point to one or you can point to all. Thank you. Hi, I'm actually a colleague at Stephanie's. We've met at training courses. CESLID is a big organisation. Um, my name's Cheryl Brady. I'm a community partnership officer at CESLID. And I wanted to say that um, it's about information sharing here at this point to say that Housing and, and CESLID are working together. I'm managing a place-based health equity project in social housing in South Coogee, Malabar, Chifley, uh, South Maroubra and Matraville. And as part of that, we actually brought people together because we saw a spike in admissions to Prince of Wales Hospital for people falling in the streets due to the uh, heat wave last year. Um, we brought those people together similar to what you did and had a conversation with them because whatever the question is, community has the answer. And those answers and some of those strategies that they came up with has now went into our, our CESLID sustainable plan um, for addressing some of the, the, these issues. Um, also to say this is part of a place-based health equity programme that's, that's in place for the next 10 years plus. This is about generational change and addressing wicked problems for multidisciplinary partnership and it's chaired by the Director of Housing. And I think that in itself had to be shared just, just to, to say that it's not all just silos that's, that's happening out there. There are actually good pieces of work that's, that's joint partnership working. That's great. I love that, especially just being absolutely based in the experience uh, of people during heat waves. Great. Thanks for sharing that. Ollie touched on the um, uh, matter of the, um, a lot of the, uh, the houses which are being built now because of uh, being poorly built. Uh, they uh, obviously um, uh, tend to uh, absorb a lot more heat in summer and so on. Uh, I was reading actually that um, there's often something like a 10 degree difference for most of summer between uh, the coast and uh, Penrith. Uh, and yet, uh, going back uh, 20, 30 years ago, that difference was actually far less. And um, so that would suggest that uh, one of the reasons would have to be because um, the whole of uh, Western Sydney is a lot more uh, built up than it used to be. Um, certainly when I grew up in the West, uh, growing up in the 60s and 70s, the way that housing was designed at the time, there was certainly a lot more uh, space for uh, green space, much larger backyards, uh, there was uh, green uh, verges and so on. Uh, whereas now, of course, as we know, these houses are built, you know, sort of almost wall to wall. There's no space really to even grow trees and so on. So um, given that um, there's obviously a lot of, you know, the, uh, the way that the real, real estate industry is and uh, the building industry and uh, developers and so on, uh, particularly the, the big developers and uh, their uh, influence on uh, governments and so on. So I guess my question is, what uh, hope is there to try and push for better environments when we've got uh, up against so much, uh, both uh, Labor and Liberal are very much stuck in that kind of way of doing things. So is there any hope to... Uh... I think in response to that, I think, especially around heat, though other sort of disaster or shock events Sort of things. I think the work that's happening at the local level, right, this example um, from the back as well, the work that's happening at the local level, the work that's happening with local councils, the work that Resilient Sydney is organizing around 33 councils around cooling suburbs. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't see a lot at the state level. I certainly don't see any at the federal level. Um, but there is, there's a deep interest. I mean, this idea of cooling suburbs is one of the things that really is sort of tying together these 33 councils around thinking about resilience. So um, 
I don't know if the money's there. It's certainly not there as much outside of the Sydney LGA as it is inside the Sydney LGA. Um, but that idea of, um, uh, of local councils working with, with local communities in the design of cooling strategies, I think is, is starting to happen. Right, so that's, if there's any place to see hope on that, that's where it is. The money isn't there and the money should be there. That's what I'm, you know, if, if I epigrammed what I'm saying, it's we have to sort of seize this because waiting for the right thing to be done just isn't going to cut it. If, if we cut down on the sources of global warming in the next 10 seconds, it's still going to take hundreds of years for the world, the globe, to metabolise the heat that's already in the system. So we're still going to see ratcheting up of the changes, right? Which, is, which means that the ramifications on all these populations we're talking about are going to increase even if we, in the next 10 seconds, did what we need to do. But seeing as we're not doing that in the next 10 seconds, it's going to get way worse. So I, I just... Um, I can list out, I know the Construction Code of Australia almost up off by heart. I know the Basics Code and I know what could be demanded in terms of regulations. So I'm not saying no, 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 no. In fact, I do do a lot of work on codes and regs and da 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 da, da. Absolutely I do. But they're very much in the Band-Aid category. Um, the fact that those codes only apply to new builds. Why did I mention legacy infrastructure? There's a reason. It's because those, those hot sinks that you're pointing to don't get touched by codes which apply to the things that are new. The things that are new are going in the main to the affluent already. So, we, you know, we're already kind of talking about marginal returns. So, yeah, I can switch my policy brain on, but I'm, I'm refusing to do so because I think what we're looking at is far more comprehensive than that. Uh, thank you all. I have a question that's perhaps mainly for Ollie, but also for all of you, if you want. Um, I'm, in a country like Australia, most people have an experience of being heat stressed. Um, we know what it feels like to be too hot. Um, but yet, most Australians struggle to, or not most, but you know, we still know that getting people to understand what one degree or 1.5 degrees or two degrees of global warming means is kind of lost on people. So I'm wondering, about your perspectives on using overheating the body by one degree, 1.5 degrees or two degrees um, as a metaphor to how the planetary system works. Any perspectives on that, whether it's like maybe medically invalid um, or other, you know, other perspectives on that? I think it's a really, really nice question. Um, I think one of the challenges that we all face is trying to convey the, the real impact to as many people as possible. A lot of people understand it, but a lot of people, they think, you know, 1.5 degrees average temperatures, you know, that just sounds like a, a warmer, not the normal day. Um, I think there's different ways in which we can kind of go about this. Um, I don't have all the answers, of course, but um, so I'll share with you a couple that we're kind of thinking of, uh, of going along. And one is kind of what you're describing is saying, so in our climate chamber that we've got, we can simulate any environment that we want. So what we can do is using climate modeling is that we can say under certain carbon emission scenarios in the future, by the year 2070, you're gonna experience uh, a day like this. 
What does it do to you? How hot do you get? How quickly do you get hot? And how does it impact your ability to do certain types of work? How does it impact your ability almost to survive? And I think that kind of work would be actually quite impactful in terms of trying to get people to understand what this actually means. So with these certain carbon emission scenarios, yes, we know that the average temperatures will go up seemingly potentially modest amounts, but the, 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 the problems are going to be the prolonged periods of, of very hot weather and the, um, the short periods of, of uh, unprecedented, uh, unprecedented levels of temperature and humidity. Another thing uh, that I've I shared with Michelle and David before is, um, uh, uh, so I was, in, I was in Kobe, I was there for the, the, the Rugby World Cup, full disclosure, and uh, I had a day there and I went to the Earthquake Museum. And I was watching this, this go through this museum, they have these, these, these displays, so it was very, very interesting, it was very impactful and really made you feel what the devastation of that, of that event was like. And then at the end, it gives you, it's not a competition or anything, but at the end they say, you know, how many people died? And then I think to myself, well, how that contrasts to the number of people that die, have died in major heat waves, predominantly silently, because they're the most vulnerable, the most marginal society, and therefore it's not a big kind of um, acute event that's on the TVs. Um, we need to be able to find different ways of trying to translate the tragedy to people, to take it seriously. So my idea is maybe potentially starting a heatwave museum uh, based on a, 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 maybe it's going to be a, a, a catastrophic event that's, that's happened or maybe one that's going to happen. Um, but I think using different methods to reach people in different ways, you can use numbers, you can use modeling, but you can use art and you can use um, uh, 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 performance and things like that. Um, so there's lots of different ways in which we can reach different people, try to get everybody to collectively understand the gravity of the situation that's coming, I think. I think that's really interesting. And I've been to the Earthquake Museum and I really like, I think, I think that sort of, you know, putting yourself in that position, that sort of practical application of what it's actually like is, is really interesting. But I think the challenge with that is the cut through. And I think when you're talking about Really, and I know this is really specific groups, but if we're talking about people experiencing homelessness, they're probably not going to go to a museum and they're probably not going to be able to access these sorts of things that we're talking about, but, and they have other priorities as well. Just quickly, uh, sure I, I think, but, but these are the people that are contributing least to the problem, but they're the people that are suffering it most yeah and we're trying to i think the question's around how to get people to who are contributing to the problem yes yeah, to understand the severity of it i think that was the yeah yeah okay and i i think that is but I, but i i guess i think about then how because I, I still think even if they aren't contributing most to the problem they're still experiencing it and perhaps not understanding the full impact of it and the the longevity of it and that it's not just a couple of days that are going to be a little bit hotter it's years and years and years of impact um so i think it's about how we cut through that with good messaging and how we cut through sort of uh, perhaps some of the the messaging we get from some parts of the media that tells us that it's all a lie and it's you know that we shouldn't really think like i know that's an entirely different story but i guess it's about how, how we cut through to those sort of key populations that experience it the most but probably don't understand the impacts as much as some of us. Yeah, well, one of the problems here is that heat, it, it's not that it's invisible, deaths through heat, it's not that they're invisible, it's just that they're not as clearly counted as something like an earthquake. Uh, and it's, it's a difficult thing to communicate. But yeah, maybe a large counter on the side of a large building 
just you know live counting deaths from a heat wave every time we have one might might be one um, but I do I also just really like that idea of one of the ways of illustrating the difference between one and four degrees would be well what happens to your body at one degree versus what happens at four degrees uh, and you know, that's a, a another yeah and all of this is about communication right it's about getting the message across in terms of getting message across, I think we're out of time in terms of getting our message across. So um, I want to thank you all. How's that for a segue? I want to thank you all for coming. I know, you know, gathering in large groups is something um, that is going to slow down over the next few weeks. So I appreciate you coming. Um, I want to thank the staff of the Sydney Environment Institute, Michelle Sinan, who's sitting there, Chris Dundasback uh, in the back, and our event manager, uh, Genevieve uh, Wright, who is here. So thanks to them as well. Uh, thanks for coming. And feel free always to shoot questions uh, to us. You can, you can find all of us, shoot questions to SEI uh, and come along uh, to other events that we're having. Or if you don't want to come to public events, we're always on SoundCloud. Um, so when you're sitting alone, self-isolating, we have plenty of things for you to listen to while you're there. All right. Thanks for coming, folks.